You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. What a day here on Wall Street. A big sell-off across the board. Uh, Check out the action behind me. The Dow's down 587 points. This is the oil plunge continues and earnings weigh on sentiment. The 10-year interest uh, rate back to its lowest level since early March. Never a good sign. Uh, It's uh, not only the Dow, which is lower, it's the markets across the board. And here's what happens at the heart of things. How low could the oil price go? Paul Sankey says minus $100 a barrel, and he's coming up in a few moments. We're also going to speak with Texas Commissioner Ryan Sitton about potential production cuts. May, June, and July oil contracts are all trading deeply in the red today. Ignore the color for May there. The charts are thrown haywire by the fact that we closed negative yesterday. It's trading about $5 today. June is at 12, and July is below 21. These have all sunk considerably just this week. Let's get more on the interplay today between oil, between stocks, and also those earnings. Let's get over to Bob Pisani for that this hour. Hi, Bob. Well, you know, that collapse in oil is weighing on things, but not quite as much as you might think. Instead, it's a little bit more of a general risk-off day in terms of coronavirus. Let me just show you what the sectors are doing right now. We're sitting right near the lows for the day, essentially. S&P 500 has been down between 70 and 80 points all throughout the day here. Uh, sectors, the two biggest sectors are the weakest ones. So when you have technology and financial stocks that are down, that's going to drag everything down no matter what else is doing or outperforming. Industrial's not doing so well. Energy's down, but not as much as the rest of the uh, of the other sectors. And that's kind of interesting uh, that we're seeing there. Momentum stocks, stocks that's done well recently, they're kind of weak today. So advanced micro's done great recently. Microsoft's been a real market leader. It's getting it killed today. Starbucks has been good. It's down. Uh, North Northrop Grumman's been a great performer recently coming off of the lows. That's down. That tells me that a lot of people think this has gone a little too far too fast. Energy stocks. Brian's going to talk to you about what's going on in energy. But we don't see the big declines in energy stocks that we do see in the commodities. Some of them, like Apache, are even positive. That's a minimal decline for ExxonMobil. Marathon, Devon, those are high beta stocks that usually move a lot when the market moves. And they're not doing much at all today. I think that's interesting. Finally, look at high yield. That collapse in oil prices putting pressure on high yields. And remember, they own a substantial debt, uh, substantial part of the debt of oil companies. Guys, back to you. Absolutely looking at all angles of this. And, and Bob, by the way, you know, you've looked at the ETFs, you've looked at the, you know, the banks that are uh, associated with this. This is just yeah. the beginning of the fall. I mean, the, the oil price collapse is happening right now. It's going to take a long time to figure out what all the consequences of that are. Yes, it's going to take a while. I, I think the big thing is just getting some stability in the price of oil, because that's what's leading to all of this craziness in the futures contracts. The May contract's going to expire today. We see a lot of pressure already on the June contract. Uh, part of this has to do with just the way the futures market is set up. We're kind of focused on that. And we normally don't. Hopefully, we'll get some more stability in the price of oil in a month or two, and this will normalize a little bit. Kelly? Yeah, a month or two may seem like an eternity right now, uh, Bob, but we take yeah. your point. Thank you, sir. Bob Sani there. Uh, the May oil contract is set to expire in less than 90 minutes' time. Today, President Trump pledged his support for the industry, tweeting, quote, We will never let the great U.S. oil and gas industry down. I have instructed the Secretary of Energy and the Secretary of the Treasury to formulate a plan which will make funds available so that these very important companies and jobs will be secured long into the future. Again, that was the president today. Let's bring in Brian Sullivan for the very latest. Brian, uh, like Pisani said, any any hope of stability and what should these industries expect from the president and the administration? Well, it sounds like a little bit maybe of a bailout there. Who knows? No specifics given. We'll have to 
Maybe talk to the Secretary of Energy about that as well. See what they're thinking, Kelly. But it might explain why some of the equities have held up reasonably well, to, to Bob's point. I mean, it has been obviously a difficult situation. I mean, I've been talking all day on the phone to futures traders and hedge fund, you name it, about what happened yesterday and what happened a little bit today. It's a little bit complicated. But by the way, only about one one hundredth of one percent of the May contracts traded negative. Remember, they've been going for a year. And so you've got thin volume. You've got these tasks trading at settlement futures for the NYSE. And you've got hedge funds with big positions. You can just jam that trade down. I used to be a commodities trader. You watch people do it. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to just push that into negative territory. That's probably why Paul is going to say it could go down to negative 100. By the way, that USO, and we can fight all you know about whether or not ETFs played a role. Bob's probably got a different version than I do. That said, uh, the the ETF. If you put ten grand of Mr. and Mrs. Evans's money mm-hmm. when that USO launched in 2006, Kelly, Mr. and Mrs. Evans would have about six hundred dollars today. So you put in ten grand 14 years ago, you'd have six hundred today. That about fill up my RV with cheap gas. Right. The, the irony, Brian, I was thinking back to 2008 when oil hit hundred dollars a barrel for the first time. That was also during a really bad recession. It hurt consumers, but then the energy patch kind of helped, you know, offset uh, some of the rest of the harm. It was doing relatively well. Well, today, totally different scenario. The energy patch is really hurt by this, and very few people can actually benefit from the cheap gas. It didn't offset it. It was it. I mean, the reason that I got involved in energy was not because I love the hydrocarbon. It's because in 2008 and 2010, when we were trying to recover as a nation— Energy, oil and gas, was the only industry adding jobs. In fact, if you go back and really look at the data, one of the reasons we launched the Hopium campaign back Hmm. in whatever it was, 2011, was that oil and gas was really powering the entire economy up. It made the overall data look less bad, and it drove the market and and maybe added a positive layer of psychology. That's why it's so risky now. Texas has been the growth driver of most of the United States, as far as population and whatever it is, this is putting Texas directly at risk. By the way, I know you've got Ryan sitting on. Mm-hmm. I watched their uh, rail commission here. You could tell him that you gave me a heart attack because I'm sitting there listening. And apparently the assistant attorney general of Texas is named Brian Sullivan. He's <laughs> like, we're calling on Brian Sullivan right now. I wasn't patched in. I literally was like eating a hot dog. So just tell me that guy's got to change his name. We're going to tell him right now. We are going to speak to Ryan right now about that. But Brian, so well said about oil and gas. It it reminds me of how we felt about Silicon Valley in in some of those years as well. It was, you know, so nice for there to be something expanding like it was. Um, Anyway, we'll check back in with you soon, uh, Brian, when we speak to the energy secretary next hour. Uh, But let's talk to Ryan Sitton in the meantime. He is one of the three members on the Texas Railroad Commission and the only one who was in favor of taking a vote today on cuts. Ryan joins me now. And it's good to see you, sir. And so you're talking about uh, how much here, a 20 percent production cut for Texas? That's what I believe we should do. If we tie it to production cuts in other areas around the country and even some other areas around the world, yes. So that's a big if, though. I I mean, because if Texas does it alone, you're going to lose market share, right? Well, let's let's talk about this. How much market share is there, right? When you're talking about the global demand for oil being 75 million barrels a day or less, it's no one's gaining market share. Now, if there's some discussion, wait a minute, if Texas cuts alone, do we lose a proportional market share? Maybe, but, but no one's drilling, no one's accelerating their drilling program to fill a gap. 
Now, that said, the reason that we should prorate only contingent on other people prorating is if we do it alone, it doesn't really provide a lot of stability to the market. OPEC already pulled close to 10 million barrels a day out of the market. Uh, we still think the market's oversupplied by 10 to 15, maybe 20 million barrels a day more. Yeah. But this action for us to take five would help bring that balance a little closer as we start to see demand come back in places like China. Is prorate a fancy term for quotas? Uh, no, in terms of proration is we, knowing how much you can produce, setting a limit on that is a little different than saying, here's kind of an allocated amount that you can produce over time. So proration is more based on your historic performance and then going forward, whereas quotas is a way of just allocating that looking forward, regardless of what someone's development has been in the past. So you would have been ready to take that decision, take that vote. You know, hopefully, you know, you'd want the, your colleagues on board with you to say, yes, we're going to go ahead and prorate. Uh, but you would do that only in conjunction with other states. And would Canada be part of that as well? It would be. My, my position is if we, we if we voted today or when we vote May 5th, if we say we're going to prorate a million barrels a day, roughly in Texas, which is about 20 percent contingent on four million barrels coming from other states, other nations, then it get then we enact those cuts on June 1st. It provides a runway of about 35, 40 days if it was today, 35 days if we do it May 5th, sorry, 25 days if we do it May 5th, for those other people to get on board knowing that Texas has chipped in a million. Right. So North Dakota has a meeting uh, this afternoon. Uh, Oklahoma is talking about maybe consider, you know, having regulators consider limits because they're concerned this is all wasteful. Uh, I guess yep. your chairman, uh, who we'll speak to tomorrow, says he's reached out to Canada's oil minister. She's offered to help if you guys decide to prorate. I mean, this is kind of like a North American OPEC that is shaping up here. How how likely do you think the odds are that you'll actually come to some kind of deal and agreement? Uh, put it this way, the, the harder prices are, the, the more we are seeing contract prices in the low single digits and even going negative, I think the odds are better. It's really hard for anybody to make the argument today that there's not waste and waste to the tune of literally tens, if not hundreds of, of millions of dollars a day just in Texas. So I think that the, the impetus is there. The law is there for us to do something. The question is just how. And, and look, you know, you mentioned Canada. I talked to Sonia Savage up there, talked to our counterparts in New Mexico. I mean, this has been an ongoing conversation. Talked to the Russian oil minister again yesterday. Hmm. And, and he was saying that, look, we do need more decisive action. But any additional action, any discussion of additional action by OPEC, he said, would likely be dependent on whether or not Texas was able to make something formal happen. So I think there's a lot of momentum. And when you see this massive amount, this massive glut of oil on the market versus demand, it's incumbent upon us to act. All right. And how soon do you think we, uh, that action could happen, Ryan, real quickly before we go? At this point, I think it's May 5th. We'll have an order prepared. And I, I believe the three commissioners will take a vote on May 5th. Um, don't know for sure, but I think that was the message that you got from the three of us today. All right, Ryan, thanks again for your time for joining us today uh, with that update. Ryan Sitton of the Texas Railroad Commission. Be sure to catch our first on CNBC interview with Texas Railroad Commission Chair Wayne Christian tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Again, we'll see if anything more comes out of this hearing today, but now May 5th looks like the next important milestone. For more on what that means for the energy sector, I'm joined by Dan Pickering. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, the last time we spoke a couple weeks ago, you thought this was becoming the best energy investing opportunity since 1986. Do you still feel that way? <laughs> I mean, and what do you make of the deeply negative price of crude oil? Yeah, it's unprecedented times, Kelly, and uh, no doubt that uh, this is, is kind of worse and crazier than I think any of us expected it would be. Um, the way stocks are acting uh, better than the market generally. I mean, energy has been the worst 
uh, sector for the past decade, five years, three years, one year. And so I don't think it's surprising. It's sort of discounting some of this craziness already. So still a very good environment to sort of start picking your winners. Definitely hard in, in the near term, though. So I think this plays out over the next two or three months with uh, pressure on prices. And so uh, you're getting your list together now and uh, thinking about what you, what you want to participate in as we move ahead. You know, we are going to speak with Paul Sankey in a little uh, bit, he, you know, with Mizuhu. He's their analyst there. Um, but he, the kinds of scenarios that he talks about, you know, that ConocoPhillips might merge with Chevron. He says, you know, these types of things met with a high degree of skepticism, but so is his call about negative oil prices that's coming true. You know, just how extreme might conditions get to fundamentally reshape the companies in the oil patch as we know them? Yeah, no question that we're in, I mean, the industry is very, very challenged. And so what's playing out on our screens is going to continue to play out over the next couple of years, and companies are going to have to do something to survive. And so there are going to be some significant winners. They're probably going to pick through the ashes of the losers and, and find the, the good assets there. And so I, I do think that consolidation is a natural outcome of this. It may take a couple years for it to play out. So immediately, I'm skeptical it would happen immediately, but we're going to have fewer companies in a couple years. Yeah, I guess the question for investors is maybe how to bet on uh, the, the acquisition targets or, or something to that effect. I'll leave that up to you guys. My final question was just going to be if there's anything about what you just heard from Ryan Sitton that jumps out to you in terms of the plans that the Texas Commission has or is trying to have with North American producers uh, to, to prorate oil production. Yeah, when I look at, at the actions being taken, whether it's OPEC, Texas Railroad Commission, um, President Trump and, and all of these things, demand is down 30 million barrels a day. Until demand gets better, the actions by these government entities, are it's going to take too long. It's not going to be effective. And so I think we've got to see demand come back. When it does, these supply actions will matter and help support price. But until demand comes back, it's a free-for-all in the oil markets. And I think, I think we're just, it's a sideshow seeing what, what the the various government entities are going to do in, in the short term. Yeah, it does feel that way uh, the longer we go and the, the worse the oil price gets. Dan, thanks. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank Dan you, Dan Pickering with Pickering Energy Partners. We've got some breaking news on the Small Business Administration. Kate Rogers with the details. Kate? Hi, Kelly. That's right. We're learning of some new issues with the Small Business Administration's Economic Injury Disaster Loan program applications. Now, nearly 8,000 businesses were notified that their information may have been potentially exposed to other applicants within the SBA's portal. Remember now, this is a program that businesses apply directly with the SBA for. This is not the Paycheck Protection Program uh, with which they're working with the big banks. Now, a senior administration official told CNBC that personal identifiable information of a limited number of economic injury disaster loan applicants was potentially exposed to other applicants on the SBA's loan application site. We immediately disabled the impacted portion of the website, addressed the issue, and relaunched the application portal. The SBA also notified potentially impacted individuals and offered them one year of free credit monitoring. So once again, you had to be an applicant within this portal, nearly 8,000 businesses potentially impacted. Uh, there's been no sign so far per the SBA that there's been any attempt to misuse any of this information, but they have let all of these business owners know. And yet just another bump in, a ro in the road here as this program continues to roll out. Kelly. Yeah, for sure. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers.
Now let's get to stocks catching up with that plunge in oil today. Believe it or not, though, energy is not the worst performer today. The tech sector and the Nasdaq are the worst. Nasdaq is performing worse than even the small cap Russell. What is this all telling us? Joining me now is Jeff Krempelman. He's chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. And Marianne Montaigne is portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. Uh, it's good to have you both here. Marianne, what do you make uh, specifically of this, this kind of odd market action today? Yeah, well, just to zero in on what's taking place in oil, that is all about uh, the forward futures contract. And we were talking about May oil. And on those contracts, very little trading has taken place, as one of your previous speakers was uh, saying. But I'd like to really point out very few uh, contracts were trading. So um, what is the situation is right now, holders of those contracts would have to pay someone to take the oil off their hands because right. there's just no um, uh, storage available. So we're looking out to the December oil futures contracts and see expectations of $32 per barrel. And I think that's where a lot of producers are looking to hedge uh, their money, their oil. Um, and they typically hedge out 60 to 65% of their volume in various monthly contracts. And that's why you're not seeing a big impact on the earnings I'm sorry, the uh, prices of the oil-producing stock, uh, because it doesn't have a huge impact on their earnings. Yeah. So that's kind of my quick take. No, that's a great point. I know you're not even looking uh, to the energy sector uh, in particular for investments. I'll come back to some of the places you would be looking. Jeff, I just want to get your thoughts as well on, you know, energy stocks uh, relative to the crude price and the fact that tech is the worst sector today. Yeah, I guess to focus in on, on energy, we would just agree that this tends to be more of a shorter-term kind of technical uh, you know, trading issue here, and that, you know, it, you could see the way the stocks reacted yesterday. They held up just fine, and uh, if you look at credit spreads in the energy sector, they also have uh, remained pretty well contained after uh, blowing out just a little bit. So, you know, not a lot of disruption there, and quite frankly, we don't think this is just a big deal to the market overall. There are so many other areas to be invested in at this point. Energy is only 2% of the S&P 500. Wow. And even, even within the energy complex, we've been focusing on commodities that are not fossil fuel oriented. But, you know, take a look at lithium. Look at next era commodities as we move towards electric cars and that kind of stuff. Sure. And I know so, that, um, yeah, outside of the energy space as well, some of the names that you're focusing on include Target and Starbucks and more of the consumer sector, Procter & Gamble, like you've talked about. There's plenty of other places uh, to invest. Marianne, you have kind of the same approach here. I, I look at your names and it's D.R. Horton, Cisco Food Service. I'm curious that, that you like the small caps here and wonder if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, well, the small caps are so undervalued right now, and I think there was a lot of concerns by going through the worst of the coronavirus numbers, uh, which is believe are behind us now, but uh, going through the worst that these weren't going to survive the smaller companies, and we saw the government come in and support them. However, if you look at um, the uh, price-earnings ratio on these companies, and you kind of smooth it over on a 10-year basis, You'll see the valuations are at record lows against their caps. So we think the small caps are very, very um, uh, attractive at this point in time. Even with their energy exposure? Even with their energy exposure, I, I think there's um, 
uh, a number of, uh, of factors that have been in play going against smaller caps for over a year now. And it's really been the technology side of things, just, uh, you know, leading the path in yeah. large size. Uh, and so these have been kind of left and you know, regardless of whichever sector, but looking very, very attractive right now. Jeff, would you also describe, you know, a day like today as a pause in the overall rally the tech has had? I mean, we've talked about the NASDAQ's leadership. Many of the outperformers are in that basket. Um, you know, you've got Qualcomm, for instance, as one of the names that you like. Are there other tech names on the list? So, yeah, I mean, we do like other names. We just recently added to Microsoft. We have Splunk and Salesforce and other software stocks that we think are quite attractive. And quite frankly, we just think the last couple of days are, are not unexpected at all. After a two-week run of the market being up 28% mm-hmm. in that first phase recovery rally, we really expected some kind of retrenchment. And our view has been hold your ground and upgrade. This is not the time to be heroic. Have a nice blend of offense and defense, but your inc- incremental trade – might be to fade some of these names that have run hard that are a little lower quality, a little more cyclical, and maybe trade up into some higher quality names that also are on sale. You know, we got to go, but Jeff, I'm still thinking about your stat that the energy sector is just 2% of the S&P 500 right now. What's your bet, that it goes to zero or 10%? Well, I, you know, neither one. I think it would gravitate towards the 10, but maybe... Five percent is where I think we'd be. So you get a cyclical bounce here. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's not a secular growth sector for sure. Fascinating. These crises always have a way of accelerating the future, so to speak. And you wonder if uh, that's one pocket, especially where that'll take place. Jeff Crumpleman, Marianne Montaigne, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Talking about these markets. Coming up, three states are laying out their plans for gradually reopening their economies in the next few days. We're going to speak with one member of the House Opening America Committee about if states are moving too fast. Plus, Paul Sankey warned investors that oil could go negative last month, and now he says negative 100 bucks a barrel is possible. He'll join us ahead. And the country needs more health care workers, and there are more out there, but they're sidelined. We'll tell you why as the exchange continues. The debate over whether to open the economy is heating up as more protests pop up across the country, with some states announcing they'll slowly open up as soon as this week. Joining me now is Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. He was selected by President Trump to serve on the White House task force to reopen the economy. Congressman, welcome. It's good to have you. And are people going too quickly here? Well, I think some states are moving too quickly and others are moving too slowly. I think we have to acknowledge that this is a global pandemic, but we need a regional state and local response to how we reopen our economy and how we measure the public health and the economic trade-offs that have to be made in order to reopen our economy. Uh, I think that is going to be on each state to make those decisions. That's where the police power within our uh, federalist system resides. And I think states need to make those decisions for themselves. Though the president set out a strong metric for how each state should measure this. And I think those are, there's great wisdom in what he's outlined. Well, who do you think is moving too slowly? Well, if you look at certain states are largely uh, less affected. Uh, You could see uh, states uh, in in the central part of our country that have been less affected than those on on the coast. Uh, And so each state needs to make that determination for themselves. 
Right. And that's why I know that the decision has been delegated. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so we've got Georgia saying they're going to start in a couple of days time. Would you say they're going to quickly or not? I mean, who are we to even say if, if we're saying it's up to them? Well, so the metrics the president outlined, uh, Georgia has not met any of the metrics uh, for even the first. Uh, Congressman, we'll try one more time. Can you hear me, Congressman Henry? First of, of the president's Go ahead. outlined. Just restart G- your thoughts, sir. Uh, you were saying you. that Georgia has not met any of the criteria sure. and then uh, continue that thought. Sure. And, and the president's put those metrics out. And the people of Georgia are going to be able to hold their elected officials accountable for the decisions they're making. Uh, so I think having a public metric and having public data, it means that we have an informed electorate and informed people so they can reemerge in their economic life as they see fit. Uh, so I think judging by the president's uh, standards he's laid out, Georgia has not met those metrics. Let's go over those standards. What are they? I don't, I don't have the list right in front of me. Uh, but it's basically uh, the the count, uh, the effect on your health system, uh, and those are being the key metrics here. And when you see the sort of bending of the numbers of new cases, that is a key ingredient of it. And very few states have actually seen that. Yeah, I, think, I guess to me the, the tricky thing is we all say, OK, even in the places where we have bent that curve, as soon as we start to reopen, won't it go up again? And then are we going to be shut in again, just like places other parts of the world are experiencing? That's right. And, and I think that's, that's a fair concern. And what I would say is I would rather take a few extra days in the name of public health uh, than for us to drag ourselves into uh, more illness, more deaths, and an overwhelmed health system. So let's be measured about this. Let's be pragmatic about it. The president laid out a very good set of metrics. We have public uh, information that we can all use for ourselves to judge whether or not it's safe for us to reemerge in economic life. Yeah, I certainly hope that the healthcare system is at better capacity now to deal with a wave than it would have been when this first happened. Obviously, maybe that can give us, you know, a little bit of comfort. Uh, people have suggested more vulnerable populations maybe continue to, to quarantine more aggressively. Um, but, you know, but if we if we're talking about a few days, sure, we could take that precaution. But what happens if people say, well, it'll be weeks or months still of a shutdown? I mean, that's at some point, I'm reading about how, you know, liver transplants and, and chemo, I mean, that's not happening. I mean, these these are how do we get back to normal for in that sense? Well, then that is also the regional uh, uh, approach. You have some hospital systems that are largely unaffected. There's got a good example in Pittsburgh. Uh, they have a hospital system that's largely unaffected. And so they can do uh, some of the other procedures that have been left uh, on the sidelines uh, and treat patients that uh, would would be at risk uh, a, a month ago or two months ago. Um, and so that needs to be focused on the hospital systems and those regional decisions. So we're going to have 50 different approaches to this, but we all need to have the same information so that we can hold our elected officials at the local and state level accountable for the decisions they're making. And so we can actually have our voices heard. Uh, what I don't want is all of us to hang out uh, for all 50 states to be in an in a area of perfect safety. I think it would be far better for us to have half the states open and half the states uh, moving more slowly uh, than for us to have a one-size-fits-all approach uh, nationally. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten into uh, more funding for small businesses, which looks like it might be uh, starting to come on the way. Uh, but we'll leave it there for now, Congressman, and thanks. We do appreciate it. 
Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, part of the Reopening America Committee. Coming up, we're going to look at Texas. Frost Bank, which is based down there, has processed more than a year's worth of those small business loans in just over a week. The bank is also bracing for fallout from this oil collapse on its local economy and businesses. The CEO joins us live to talk about all of that ahead. Plus, there's some of the most critical workers needed right now, but new nursing grads are facing a roadblock getting into the field. We'll tell you why next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue. Thank you very much, Kelly. And we begin, everyone, with the latest numbers. Confirmed coronavirus cases in Canada have now risen to more than 37,000. Just over 1,700 Canadians have died from the virus. And in Italy, the death toll there rose by more than 500, bringing the total to 24,648. Here at home, a majority of American voters, 58 percent, are in favor of casting their ballots by mail in November. That's according to a new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. This as more than a dozen states have postponed or changed their voting formats amid the coronavirus outbreak. New York's Attorney General Letitia James is opening an investigation into Charter Communications' coronavirus response. The telecom company continued to require some employees to report to corporate offices amid government calls for employers to allow remote work where possible. 230 employees have reportedly tested positive for COVID-19. You can always get more on our coronavirus coverage by heading to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Let's talk about nurses. They are among the most critical workers needed right now, but some are being kept on the sidelines because of long delays in certification tests. Rahel Solomon is here with more on the story. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So we know that healthcare workers are sorely needed. In fact, in New York, Governor Cuomo called for out-of-state professionals to come to assist with COVID-19. But some recent nursing grads say they want to help, but they're facing these long delays to get certified. We spoke to a woman, a graduate in Brooklyn. Her name is Caitlin Gray. She says that her test has been postponed three times in March and April. We go into nursing for our own reasons, but the goal is ultimately the same, and that is to help people. And in this case, it's not only helping COVID-affected patients, it's helping our fellow nurses, because we hear on the news constantly how we need nurses desperately. So it gets, it's upsetting more than it is frustrating. So Bob Whalen of Pearson Assessment says that they were forced to close all of their testing facilities in March due to social distancing requirements. He tells us that they're now up to about 80 percent of testing facilities open. One thing, Kelly, he says they're trying to do to help is they administer certifications for 250 professions or 250 tests. He says that they have pretty much made all of the other tests other than healthcare workers virtual so that they get, get these workers in, tested and working as soon as possible. When I asked, well, why not make the nursing test virtual so you can get even more people tested? He said essentially they've offered that. But of course, public safety, it's high stakes. Public safety is at risk. So that's sort of the situation that they're dealing with. Meantime, in New York, Governor Cuomo is allowing recent nursing graduates to work for 180 days as long as certain conditions are met, as long as they're supervised and things like that. 
When I asked Caitlin about that, she said that she wants to take her test and just be done with it before she starts working. Kelly, she is scheduled to take her test in May, fingers crossed, that she actually gets to sit for that test. You know, it's fascinating, Rahel, because it basically suggests if they don't trust the virtual test for nurses, they're saying, we really shouldn't trust the virtual test for anything, or maybe it'd be fine for nurses and they're just being too stringent about it. I mean, so, something's wrong here. Yeah, you know, I think it depends on what the tests are. When I asked, well, give me some examples of what other certifications people are taking. They said like project management, that sort of thing. 250 different professions. I think when it comes to nursing, uh, maybe they haven't quite worked out the kinks as far as virtual testing just yet. But when mm -hmm. I asked, well, how are you even social distancing people who are coming into the facilities? And he said that usually you're sitting cubicle to cubicle, but now you're sitting every other person. So uh, they're trying to sort of maintain and comply with guidelines and, you know, try to get people in and out as quickly as possible. And yeah. Kelly, as you know, we, we sorely need it. Absolutely. And it's not just there that the testing obviously is a big issue this season. We're even going to see maybe the ACT and SAT have to adapt, but we need the nurses in the meantime. Rahel, thanks so much. Rahel Solomon, sure. we appreciate it. Coming up, oil futures prices may be negative, but it's even worse where prices are being paid at the pipelines down south. How bad can things get? Well, how about negative 100 bucks a barrel? Plus, the street gets bullish on an airline. Yes, an airline. And why one analyst says the Amazon rally is just getting started. These two bold calls when the exchange continues. Welcome back to the exchange. Let's get a check on these markets with a Dow down 479 points or 2%. The Nasdaq, the worst performer today. Dom Chu has more for us. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, we can see here that the Dow, the S&P and Nasdaq are currently, as you said, just off about 2%. And it may not be much, but we are off the lowest levels of the day in trading so far. At the lows, the S&P was actually down 96 points. We're down about 67 right now. But as you can see, every sector is negative. Real estate, energy, and industrials, the relative outperformers. Meanwhile, you've got tech, communication services, and financials leading the lagging part of the market overall. Now, shares of Dow component Coca-Cola losing some momentum today. The soft drink maker reported profits and sales that both topped analyst estimates, but said the COVID-19 pandemic will have a material impact on results going forward. Another Dow component, IBM, also lower on the day, well off the worst levels of the session after the tech services giant did report quarterly revenues that were lower than the same time a year ago. It also withdrew its full-year guidance. And then checking on shares of Netflix, lower ahead of the streaming giant's Earnings after the closing bell today still, though, sitting around 4% below its recent record highs. It's going to be a big, Kelly, after the bell mover to watch. Back over to you. Oh, that's a great point, Dom. Thank you, sir. Let's go back to oil. My next guest was among the first to warn us last month the crude could go negative, and now he says it could get even worse, with negative 100 bucks a barrel, a real possibility next month. For more, I'm joined by Paul Sankey. He's the oil and gas analyst with Mizuho. And, Paul, I mean, what I think is most interesting about your explanation here, because we heard uh, people earlier this hour, they were saying, look, don't worry about oil. It's a thinly traded futures contract. It's a technicality. The energy's holding up okay. The credit's okay. You're saying, no, this is a real thing happening in the real world. People are paying minus 40 to minus $60 a barrel all over the place. What do you think is going on here? Well, it's, it's simply the demand story is so epically enormous that we're having a, a problem with managing the actual physical reality of crude. You know, typically the industry runs on a just-in-time basis, uh, produce a barrel, uh, move a barrel, refine a barrel, consume a barrel, and suddenly we have 35 million barrels a day to try and handle, and it, it becomes impossible quite frankly and that's why the prices can go to almost any level you know it's it's just unknown what will happen over the next month 
I think the point we were making this morning, Kelly, is simply that there's another month still to go. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what's concerning. So we've already hit these extraordinary lows, but we're not out of the woods by any means yet. You know, Jeff Curry of Goldman had a slightly different look at it yesterday. He said that he thinks the peak week globally for demand destruction was last week and that by June you could start to be in a deficit situation again. Would you also say that's possible and you're just saying it's going to get a lot worse in May before June gets better? Or do you have a fundamentally different view? No, we're similar. I mean, we're watching Google mobility. We're watching Apple mobility data, which is fantastic because it's so up to date. I think the staggering one uh, is India down 80% in terms of mobility. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that we're somewhere near the lows if we begin to open up this week. I was uh, surprised that there's not been more of an uptick in Spain and Italy. You know that they've opened up slightly, but their mobility trends remain extremely negative, down 85, 90%. And there's actually no sign of the uptick that you read about when you read that they were opening up slightly. Wow, which doesn't bode well for here, um, for people being doesn't. eager to get out and go. That said, you do still have a pretty a bullish view on demand for crude in the back half of the year because prices are so low. So the December contract is trading around $32. Is that a world that you think is, is going to be a reality? And again, people need to know it. This is not like the stock market where it's a constant discounting operation. It's the cash price, like Curry keeps saying. So, you know, it has to clear at these ridiculous levels before we can get to $32 a barrel. But does 32 seem doable for you? And if so, is that why the equity and the credit isn't more upset right now? Yeah, I mean, typically the equity market, the debt market for that matter, which is actually quite disconnected from the equity. The equity market for oils is much more positive than the debt market. But it's notable yesterday that oil debt didn't trade down in the way that crude did. It couldn't have, but uh, nevertheless has actually held up yesterday, regardless of the price. I think the point, Kelly, to be clear is that the second half of the year, we think will be exceptionally strong for gasoline. Uh, our regressions show that the most important single driver, not car choice, not Tesla penetration, not efficiency of cars, not even employment, but actually simply price of U.S. gasoline huh. really drives consumption here. And so we're looking for a big second half that if the refiners retain their discipline will mean huge refining profits. The issue is that if the refiners retain discipline, it's not a huge in increase in crude demand. So I think the 30 is fair. Absolutely. But I don't see it much upside when you've got so much inventory and so much spare capacity in OPEC and by then in U.S. EMP as well, because we'll have to shut down a couple of million barrels a day of U.S. oil yeah. and gas production here over the next literally four or five weeks. You know, a lot of people will say when you're dealing with a crisis like this to bet on the biggest companies, but you're worried about some of the biggest oil companies like ExxonMobil and ConocoPhillips being the hardest to fall. Why is that? Oh, just simply because the scale of losing money here is so epic that the bigger you are, uh, the more money you lose faster. So their debt, you know, will increase massively, not against, obviously, their more powerful balance sheets, but just in absolute terms. The issue for both of them, I think, also important is that they don't hedge, nor does Chevron. So whereas many of the smaller EMPs are hedged for 2020, although not for 2021, uh, the fact is that this will just be absolute losses and absolute uh, deterioration of balance sheet for the biggest names, who obviously, in absolute terms, We'll see the biggest uh, deterioration in, in, in increases in debt deterioration in balance sheet over the next six, eight weeks. And like you said, you've been met with a lot of skepticism for suggesting that Conoco could merge with the likes of Chevron. But talk about some of the possibilities that might emerge here from these companies being absolutely battered by this price shock. Well, you know, the first line is always that it's a question of an oil company calling another one to sell itself, not not the other way around. Although it didn't quite work like that with Oxiana Darko, but nevertheless, typically deals are friendly 
And that's really where we were coming from on the Conoco idea. Uh, I think that the premium assets, which are in the Permian, we see Guyana as being obviously a long-term, highly attractive asset. Those are all still investable in terms of one company wanting to buy another. Uh, but there's a whole uh, swathe here of, of assets, particularly you'd say North Dakota, Oklahoma, uh, not, not the Permian in Texas, which likely will be significantly smaller going forward and never really return to the glory days again until uh, really these companies have been rationalized. And when they are, there'll, there'll be less of them. And so really, we're going to see, unfortunately, a structurally smaller US oil industry going forward uh, after this disaster, I'm afraid to say. Wow. And I imagine even with uh, any kind of government support we might see, this is just too overwhelming of a move. Paul, it's great to, to hear your views. Thank you. Hope to check back in with you soon. Paul Sankey of Mizuho on the crude collapse today. Well, the June contract, which we're rolling over to after today, that one's now sitting at session lows. So it's the second one on your screen there, and it's trading under $10 a barrel. This is the one that was supposed to be the real price, quote unquote, and it's below $10 a barrel. But with all of these losses across the board, it's not all bad, according to my next guest. Joining me now with some ideas on where you can find opportunities in this market is John Spallanzani of Miller Value Partners. John, give us some good news. Give us some bright spots. Hey, how are you, Kelly? Hope everybody's uh, safe, healthy, healthy, and happy uh, right now uh, during the crisis. Yeah, I think that uh, some of the some of the bright spots to look forward to, uh, obviously, is that uh, you know a lot of the death rates are obviously going down. The curve is being uh, bent uh, rather uh, mightily right now uh, throughout the globe, actually. So the numbers are incrementally better, uh, as well as we've had some. Uh, a lot of trials on the drug trial front are, are going on. Uh, there's some vaccine testing going on in uh, in the U.K., so that's positive. And the big positive, I think, uh, on the horizon is the Fed meeting next next weekend that a uh, few people are talking about. And I think that uh, the forward guidance from the Fed is going to be very, very aggressive, uh, more aggressive than the market is uh, anticipating right now. You know, John, when Bill Miller was on last time, he said it was a kind of once in a generation buying opportunity for stocks, and that was about four days before the recent bottom. Most people are skeptical and concerned that this rally can last because it's been so sharp over the last month or so. Do you guys think that was the lows of this cycle? Um, and what do you think the rally looks like? And, and who's the leadership or who do you think investors should bet on? Well, we can't say the, the low is in, but uh, we think that right now a good trading range is probably going to be between 2400 and 2900 uh, we, We're going to have, obviously, the Fed next week. Warmer weather is coming. That's going to really help things a lot. Uh, I think that you're probably going to have a decent uh, – you know, we had 30% rally off the, off the lows. Uh, that was a 37% retraction, uh, retracement from, from the highs. So uh, back in the, uh, the Spanish flu – the drawdown was about 47%, so we were really only 10% uh, from that level. So we, we really corrected quite a bit. The positive thing is that we corrected from such a high level. The economy went into this at such a high level. Uh, the Fed and also the government has reacted much more quickly than they had in 2008, so that's actually another positive going forward. So I think that uh, right now the, uh, the market is uh, – is digesting the, the big rally off the bottom, which, as you say, has been uh, has been met with a lot of skepticism mm -hmm. as rallies have been in the past. So uh, there's really nothing nothing new there. In terms of the earnings, I think that uh, really the the earnings in 2020 are going to be kind of uh, just kind of put 
put aside. You know, everybody's pulling their guidance. There's not a lot to uh, to go on. So really, we're going to be continuing uh, to trade off of uh, drug discoveries, obviously uh, incremental news in terms of uh, the curve being flattened. And again, there is so much stimulus out there that yeah. it, you know, m- money supply is growing 20% year over year, which is fantastic. Uh, China's coming back online. Uh, that's going to be another positive. Uh, and, and there's, there's good things to look forward to. We're seeing a lot of value, obviously, uh, across the spectrum. Uh, some of the things that we're, we're looking at is there's a lot of opportunities in credit right now. I think there's a lot of bonds that, uh, kind of got thrown out here that offer equity-like returns. So we're looking at some of those and we're rotating into some, uh, big, Stocks, which you'll hear about very soon. All right. Well, I look forward to that. But uh, overall, a little bit more optimistic view of what's going on with the economy, like you said, the Fed and the markets. John, thanks. It's good to check in with you you as well. John Spallanzani with Miller Value Partners. Coming up, Congress is also set to vote on a bill to provide more funding for the small business lending program, which ran out of funds pretty fast. But how quickly can the new funds be made available? We'll get the latest. Plus, the CEO of one San Antonio-based bank on his experience with the program and what he's hearing from energy clients. Stay with us. Welcome back. The historic plunge in oil prices continues today after closing negative yesterday for the May contract, which expires today. The June and July contracts are sinking now as well. So here's the three on your screen. May is at $8 a barrel. But look at June. It's two cents higher. That spread was like $50 yesterday. Today, it's just a couple of cents. So again, the June contract trading around $8. The July contract still up at 18 But there's a lot more to this story. Uh, as we continue to look at the fallout, the Senate is expected to pass a bill today that would include additional funding for the small business program, the PPP, which tapped out last week. My next guest is on the ground helping Texas businesses navigate the program and the toll of this pandemic. Frost Bank helped secure $3 billion in loan approvals. That's more than a year's worth of loans in just a week. Now they have the oil collapse to deal with as well. Joining me is Frost Bank Chair and CEO Phil Green. Phil, welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm going to start with with what I'm picking up on more and more lately, and it's this sense out there that that banks are not the solution; they're the problem because all of these loans are going to people with cozy relationships and not. You know what I'm saying? What What is your response? And is it all because Congress isn't replenishing the money that instead of everybody being able to get access to the, these funds, everyone's pointing fingers about who got something and who didn't? You know, Kelly, I. I really disagree with the fact that that uh, that it was not a, a, an equally or a egalitarian system. Eighty two percent of our approvals went to loans of three hundred fifty thousand dollars or less, which means those are basically employers of thirty five people or less. Eighty two percent of the apps. So I, our experience was that we just focused on getting the apps processed and there was not any any focus on doing big deals or, or special deals. Sure. And what would you say are the industries where you're seeing a lot of the demand? Because the restaurant industry, which is now being villainized to some extent for carving out this 500 uh, people per location exemption to make sure that they could get funds, surprisingly didn't even get that much of the first uh, disbursement of funds. So in Texas, in your San Antonio era, what kind of, of people were getting this money? You know, the first, the highest ones was service level companies, you know, professional firms, different kinds of services. I think restaurants were down on the list. I'm not sure they were even the top five. Uh, second was healthcare, which obviously is really important for everyone today. 
So uh, that's that's sort of what we saw. You know, people have asked about energy. Did you see a lot of energy companies? Mm-hmm. Less than three percent of our applications that were processed were energy companies. Less than three percent. Less than three. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what happens now? I mean, the president this morning tweeted that there will be some support for this industry. He said it's too important to America to fail. But we just spoke with a guest who said it will never be as big as it was during the past decade. How would that affect you, your bank and your region? You know, the energy, energy business is definitely under pressure. The people I talk to, I haven't heard really any uh, positive optimism right now. There are three problems we've got to deal with. Obviously, it's the medical problem. With COVID-19, we've got to start burning some fuel, using inventory. Secondly, there's no capital available in the industry, really, in the equity markets, high-yield markets, and even bank redeterminations are going to be lower as you put these prices in. So that's going to dry up some of that capital. And then the third thing is, I think, importantly, if this goes on too long, you're going to see production decline, particularly in the Permian Basin. And in one to two years, you could see oil prices go up and we could have a real old-fashioned recession at that time. Oh, that's true from the oil price spike. Uh, Yeah, the the cure for low prices is low prices, so to speak. How much more funding would you like to see, Phil? For the PPP? Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping for 250 million, but we'll see. 250 billion, excuse me. Right, right. And then uh, maybe as a start, and then we'll see. The demand might be in the trillions based on what's already been distributed. Phil, thanks for being so candid, and thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you, Kelly. Phil Green is chairman and CEO of Frost Bank, which has done $3 billion in approvals for 10,000 businesses, 76% approval rate. Uh, Coming up, the May crude contract closing in the next half hour. Can't miss what could be another historic day in the energy markets. Our breaking news coverage continues after this short break. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.